eerste ervaring. En nu, ladies en gentlemen, uw attention, please. Big decisions have even bigger consequences in the world of marketing leadership, where data informs everything, second chances are rare, and ROI is no longer the only metric that matters. Please join us as we go Inside the Funnel. Welcome to Inside the Funnel. This month, we have a very special guest joining Dan Tamby, Jenna Watson, and myself, Nasser Salul. He is the world's most inspirational marketing, customer experience, and customer service keynote speaker, a New York Times bestselling author of six books and advisor to more than 700 companies since 1994, including Caterpillar, Nike, the United Nations, and 36 of the Fortune 500. He's an internet pioneer, a seventh-generation entrepreneur, and the founder of five, count them, five multi-million dollar companies. He is the sultan of speaking, the commander of content, the emperor of experience, the Prince of Plaid, Mr. Jay Bear. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you for that uh, kind, kind introduction. Uh, that was uh, that was great. Uh, I think my mom wrote that, and I appreciate her, her willingness to do so. It's okay. Her check is in the mail. Um, so I, I also understand, Jay, that you are a tequila collector and a certified barbecue judge, which leads Both me to true. my... It leads me to my obvious first question. Um, what particular type of barbecue are we talking about? Well, I don't really discriminate uh, about barbecue, and nor should anyone, but I am a certified judge of the Kansas City Barbecue Society, which is a very specific uh, competition format. There's there's competitions all, all around the country uh, using the KCBS approach, which dictates that competitors uh, turn in chicken, pork, ribs, and then finally beef brisket. Well, as an aficionado of the Texas barbecue style, um, or I should say the great state of Texas, um, I immediately <laughs> question your credentials <laughs> and and your ability to speak on this subject. Um, Indeed. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of sausage in the Texas barbecue. It's the, the German tradition of Central Texas is, is how that uh, uh, came about. I am, uh, I am a big fan of the Texas barbecue as well. And uh, cannot wait to get back on the road and, and get me some. A lot of my uh, family live live in Austin or outside of Austin. So one of these days, I'm going to be back. One day, one day. Um, so, Jay, you, you, you speak a lot about experience and customer experience, and you write a lot about that, uh, your most recent books for sure. Um, <clears throat> why, why in your writings and, and in the speeches that you make, why do you say that experience is more important than ever? Well, I think partially because we're making different buying decisions now. Some of the most fascinating research since the pandemic suggests that a higher share of consumers are buying things from businesses for the very first time now than at ever before since the invention of the Internet. And I think the underlying psychology, Nasser, is this, that in a world where everything is a mess – you might as well just look at all your options, right? That's why divorces are up 34%. People are like, look, yeah, I've had the same chiropractor for 10 years, but you know what? Maybe I want a different chiropractor now. Let's just rip off the Band-Aid. Switching suppliers for anything uh, has historically been kind of a hassle, right? That's why it's called switching costs in business. But switching costs aren't that big of a problem when you're not really sure if your kids are going to be able to go to school. Mm-hmm. So what the reality of this is that your customers, my customers, the customers of everybody listening have a wandering eye now. 
they are quite literally mathematically more likely to, to defect to a competitor than they have been for probably 20 years. Conversely, however, they're also more likely uh, to defect from a competitor to mm-hmm. you. And these shifts in market share are not being driven by economics. You might think it is because of the state of the economy, but it's not. It's being driven by experience. It's who's easiest to deal with, who makes me feel more comfortable, who's less of a hassle, who's less risky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point, Jay. And I would argue, or not argue, I guess I would agree with you and add and say and yes, the and. Um, <laughs> it's also the the barrier to entry for new brands is really really low. So me as a consumer, I can go test them out and see which experience I prefer. Right? There's new brands popping up in my feeds all the time that I've never heard from before, but yet boxes keep showing up at my front doorstep because I'm giving right. it a shot. <laughs> The, the amount of stuff I've bought from Instagram ads for yep. companies that I'm not sure actually are companies uh, <laughs> is, is probably irresponsible on my part. Uh, the whole DTC trend, and when everything is, is pickup or delivery, yeah, you don't you – know, think about ghost kitchens and that whole trend, mm-hmm. right? You don't need all the infrastructure you used to have. And, and it's interesting that you say that, Jen. It reminds me of when the internet first became big and it commoditized information. Right back in the day, and I'm certainly old enough to remember, to be in the information game, you you needed to own a printing press, mm-hmm. or a bunch of TV cameras and a mm-hmm. license, uh, or or a fraction of the airwaves, and then it's like, oh, WordPress, now I got it, and now we're seeing the same thing with commerce, and it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, given that there all are all of these options, that gives a myriad of places and and brands for people to try out, but. What to your point, what's going to get them to stick is that good experience and feeling like they're the right brand for the for the person. So, in your experience, why is it that most customer experience initiatives actually fail? And it is most actually the 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 data point on that is that seventy percent of customer experience initiatives fail to produce return on investment. And it's not for lack of enthusiasm for the premise of CX. Like, I've been doing this for 30 years, right? I started in this business when domain names were mm-hmm. free. You could get whatever domain name you wanted. Now, sir, I don't think I ever told you the story. In 93, uh, when domain names were free, uh, I had my very first internet company, and my partners and I registered a bunch of domains, including Budweiser.com. We get a call from Anheuser-Busch, who then owned a, a Budweiser. We want to build the first ever website for Budweiser. We said, that, sure, okay. Well, we're not just going to give you this domain name. And we sold Budweiser.com to Anheuser-Busch in 1993 for 50 cases of beer. <laughs> and we... <laughs> Genuinely thought that we got a super deal, uh, and and I will I will say in our defense it was bottles, not cans. That was actually in the contract um, that it had to be bottled, you know, classy beer. So I've been doing this a while, uh, and never has anybody ever said, "Nah, Jay, I think you're wrong. I don't think customer experience is important." But the problem, Jenna, is that being in favor of customer experience. And doing something about customer experience ain't the same thing. And the the underlying problem here is that we think of customer experience holistically. We treat it like it's a thing, like you can move it on a chessboard. And it's not a thing. Customer experience doesn't actually exist. It's fake. It's a nickname that we created 
to represent dozens or hundreds of decisions that you make in your business every single day. It's a nickname. It's an abstract concept. So you can't actually improve customer experience holistically. And, and the problem, the reason why customer experience initiatives fail is that people think big, and instead they should be thinking mm-hmm. small. you got to stop, start, or change some things in your business to actually make CX better. Otherwise, it's just a campfire song. Mm-hmm. It's funny you should say that. Um, this reminds me of a point that Dan made in a previous episode around, you know, go do something, right. get something done. You get, you know, so immersed in the immensity of the tasks in front of you when you when you try to do it all at once that you end up doing yeah. nothing. Do, do you want to pick up on that? A little yeah, bit, I was going to say I was just going to make the same point now, sir. You know, if you're not careful, everything can become an ocean boiling exercise. Um, and I love the way you frame that there, Jay, about customer experience isn't a thing uh it's 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 an abstraction of a hundred things that you're doing correctly that you've made a conscious decision to do that you've wired up systems to do correctly that you've implemented operating procedures and inspired people to act a certain way and to uh, leverage these things in a certain way and um in the data game and measurement game it's a very similar conversation Tell me something that doesn't throw off millions of rows of data every day that you can't quite get your arms around. And if you can just bind two of them together, you've got something greater than the sum of the parts that you can then use for something more. So uh, I think it's very interesting how those same philosophies in this space of complicated digital marketing, those same basic philosophies apply in a whole variety of different ways. Oh, it's it's so true, Dan. And and I get corporate enterprise clients, even you know, really savvy clients who say things like because most of the consulting work we do is around digital marketing and content and social. Um, I do more speaking on CX personally, but the firm does more uh, on the digital side. And even to this day, I get CMOs saying, "Ah, the problem with social media is it isn't measurable." I'm like, "You've got it backwards. Mm-hmm. The problem is it's too measurable." Right. The problem is you can't pick a metric that you actually can tie back to business success. Like in every corner of the world, we are surrounded by data like never before, but we're still starved for insights. It's not about big data. It's about big understanding. That's the gap. The Sultan of speaking, the commander of content, the emperor of experience, the prince of plaid. Plaid. So with that, if, if we think about the fact that during the pandemic, and, and you talked about this point around how people are much more willing to switch at this time than pretty much mm-hmm. any time previously in our generation. At least since the, since the internet was invented, I'd say. So, you know, at, at least for, for people as old as Dan, um, then, then certainly <laughs> our generation. Right, right. Well, I'll bleed into the previous generation. <laughs> <laughs> but but some types of businesses have been growing very quickly. So what should they be doing about customer experience? And, and you know, where do they start? Yeah, divorce attorneys killing it, as I mentioned. Uh, also, last year, slipper sales up 70%. So if you're in the slipper game, I am uh, that's wearing a huge win. some brand new wool slippers that I saw wear in my social media feed and had to have. Guess what? <laughs> I am as well. Uh, yes. <laughs> that is a true story. Uh, bravo. Also, uh, I, I, did, I did speeches recently. Uh, for two industries that flat crushed it during the pandemic, the RV, recreational uh, vehicle mm-hmm. industry, and the fishing industry, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, just absolutely on fire, unprecedented. Uh, but what 
we've got to understand is that it's not about being the cheapest and it's not about customer experience as an abstract. You have to focus on the things that customers care about disproportionately. And we've done a lot of research on this topic in, in my organization. And we found that in, frankly, every industry, the three things that customers really care about, they want you to be quick, they want you to be clear, and they want you to be kind. If you can focus your efforts on being quick, clear, and kind and put specific programs in place to be incrementally better at those three areas of CX, you will be well on your way uh, to succeeding. That's interesting. So quick, clear, and kind. How uh, that's That makes a whole lot of sense. And as a consumer of things, I agree. But as a brand, how do you know then if your CX is actually on point, if you're meeting those objectives? Well, what you want to try and do is figure out what, what is your overall CX metrics stack to begin with. You know, are you using CSAT? Are you using NPS? Are you using effort score? Are you using some other combination? Are you using recurring revenue? Are you using um, uh, pass-along rate? There's a lot of different metrics that people use in in CX in the same way that customer experience itself is an abstraction. Net promoter score, which is often used, is also very much of an abstraction, right? It's sort of a symptom and a cause all in one. Um, but what you want to try and do is say, all right, just the same way you do A-B testing marketing. We're, we have today's CX, what if we said that we were going to be 15% faster in the next 90 days? And in order to be 15% faster in the next 90 days, we are going to do X, Y, and Z. Do those things and then do a pre and post test of your key metrics as a result and then say, how can we be 15% more clear over mm-hmm. the next 90 days? So you, you have to you have to divorce the variables the same way if you're doing an A-B test or a multivariate test for an email. Uh, you, you can't change six things at once and then say, oh, it was right. the headline. I was actually going to – that's sort of foreshadowing some questions I had around measurement, Jay, and I think um, they're – obviously super topical and relevant uh, as we think about the last conversation we just had about, uh, you know, the reams and reams of data getting thrown off. You know, when you think about those three key customer experience measurements, do you find yourself also being drawn to bind them to like the traditional revenue and uh, marketing investment um, signals and KPIs and how, how do you find them playing a role in the greater measurement framework of businesses. You absolutely want to have those numbers at mm-hmm. hand. But you want to look at them from a correlative perspective, not a causative mm-hmm. perspective. Mm-hmm. Right? This idea that that we answered the phone a little bit faster or we responded to emails a little bit faster or we answered Google reviews a little bit faster, ergo, revenue went up 12%. Man, that's a dangerous game to play. So many people uh, want that answer, which is interesting that you Of course they want the answer. I want answers too. I want to know why we're here, but sometimes you can't get the answer. (laughs) Um, You wanting the answer and the answer being the right answer to create is not the same thing. Um, And and everybody wants, you know, press button, tell me if I'm right. Um, And and even with all the data we have, you're you're never going to get that. Now, over time, if you're smart and you divorce your variables, you can start to see correlative patterns that are like, okay, I can't necessarily prove without a shadow of a doubt 
that answering the phone faster equals revenue. Mm -hmm. But what's weird is every time we answer the phone faster, we make more revenue. That seems a little that seems a little fishy. So maybe let's let's uh, you introduce those variables the same way you would introduce offline uh, you know, out-of-home media variables into a fractional attribution model. Yes. You, you bring them in yes. in a very controlled way and you try to understand them as they're definitely having an influence and your job is to try to quantify <laughs> that over time. Yeah, and, and you, you just said the perfect thing, Dan, over right. time. See, this is, it's this weird mindset that people have. They think, oh, well, most of this is digital and we have the numbers, so if it's digital and we have the numbers, we should be able to, to figure out the truth really right. quickly. And it's like, well, sure, I can give you the answer really quickly if you don't care about the answer being right. Yeah. <laughs> so, I can give you an answer. I can give you an answer that might be right instantaneously. Yeah. So, so Jay, you, you talk about divorcing the variables. I'm assuming as fast as divorcing your spouse during a pandemic. Am I right? <laughs> right. Wow. All right. Well, <laughs> yeah. hi I was reading the notes. Yeah. I didn't know we yeah. were going to be down such a dark path today. So <laughs> <laughs> Everything's dark these days, Dan. Uh, everything is dark. 34% increase. There you go. So if we think about uh, one of those variables and, and we think about the, the voice of the customer and, mm -hmm. and an area where we tend to consider around the voice of the customer being representative of that is online reviews. Um, how important are they right now? Quite literally more important than at any time since the computer was invented. Mm -hmm. No big deal, yeah, though. No biggie. That is empirically <laughs> true. Um, new research just came out in late November, maybe early December, so it's fresh, uh, from Podium that found that 70%, 7 out of 10 consumers say that reviews are more important to them right now than they have ever, ever been. And of course they are. Look, it's the pandemic. You know, you have to either be super risk tolerant or super wealthy to be like, yep, I'm just going to give it a shot. I don't care what anybody else's experience was with this restaurant business, anything else. I'm just going to roll the dice. Like nobody's going to do that right now. Like everybody wants to know. I mean, think about the conversations you have with your friends right now. Everybody's, oh, yeah, I went to this restaurant. How was it? Was it safe? I bought something from this store. How was it? Was it safe? You know, and it's not even just safety. It's convenience. It's hassle. It's everything. So word of mouth slash reviews are absolutely critical. And, and, and the way we think about it in my firm, a review is just word of mouth with a shelf right. life. <laughs> it's funny, you know, earlier, Jay, you were mentioning – and Jenny, you're talking about your slippers or buying things off social media, and you weren't even sure if they were real yeah. companies. I mean, yep. the ability for scammers to spin up compelling user experiences and beautiful looking uh, purchase opportunities to buy garbage that may never come. And if it does, it's not even the right thing. I mean, the reviews, the, the way I depend on the reviews when I'm seeing all these new things fire up in my feeds, it's like never before. Like your instinct is to immediately try to verify the legitimacy of this brand first and foremost by reviews and then decide if it's actually something that you want to go ahead with. So I see that playing a huge role there as well. Uh, so, so true for 
online businesses more than ever because of, of, of what Jenna talked about, sort of the Insta company. Somebody's got a Wix yeah. account in an afternoon, and all of a sudden, right, they're in the e-commerce business. Um, but offline as well, like one of the other companion stats in that research was amazing. It was something like – I don't have the exact number in front of me, but it was somewhere around – 45% of customers, I believe, say that they have driven to a business and then sat in the parking lot checking reviews before they hmm. went in. Wow. <laughs> and wow. I'm like, yeah, I, I get that. That that totally makes sense to me. So Absolutely. Cool. I don't know. Nasser and Dan saw a pair of hideous, hideous sweatpants that I was shipped from a fake company. Oh, that's <laughs> that right. That were labeled as that was like amazing. day to night joggers <laughs> and they had fabulous reviews. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> you can get uh, you can get bamboozled by you reviews. Sure as well, well, you're right though. That's that's the hard part especially yep. in in first party reviews where you see them on your own site. Right. Um, you know, it's pretty easy to fake that. And that and that's why even though I uh, it's I'm sort of reluctant to say they're doing everybody a favor, but but Google reviews and, and other reviews that are mostly managed by um, large third parties, you feel like are a little more trustworthy as opposed to a review that's just on this, you know, sweatpants empire that you mm-hmm. bought from. What I what I find interesting when it comes to reviews in particular is, you know, how people are using the channel or or, or these types of platforms to either review the product or review the experience um, or review the service component, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the after-sales service. And and I'm fascinated by the influence that they have, in particular, where we see great product, um, potentially, but there might be a service issue. And because of the pandemic, um, there is a real reluctance as a result of that to to actually buy that product. I mean, I've I've lost count of the number of times I've seen the message. Um, Due to COVID nineteen, we cannot guarantee this service. And I mean, I I don't want to belittle it. I I completely understand it. It is it's incredibly challenging. But it's been a year. It's been a year. So I don't know what your thoughts are about that, Jay. But but this concept of using that from a business perspective, not from a human perspective, but as a business perspective, um, as an excuse for not making the investments. I couldn't agree more. I think it's ritual suicide. Like you said, it's been a year. Get your supply chain together. And and even if it's going to be slower, spin it the other way, right? Spin it the other way. Say, Say, hey, guess what? You're going to be able to get your ugly sweatpants, Jenna, in just seven days, right? Why would you spend all this kind of screen real estate with a, with a window shade pull down that from the jump characterizes your operations as less than? It's such a stupid way to approach your communications. Uh, and and it, doesn't, it doesn't actually line up with what consumers want at all. Uh, research also from Podium found that 86 percent, this is a mind blower to me, 86% of consumers say that they expect businesses to be more responsive since the mm-hmm. pandemic. Mm-hmm. This idea that consumers are going to give you a pandemic pass is categorically false. They don't care. They do not have sympathy for you. Where's my sweatpants? 
<laughs> Even though you will regret them, where are they? <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, you don't know. You, you can't tell whether you regret them until you get them. So they you, looked, you got to have They look fabulous. On so the many website, regrets. The, the, the sweatpants is just another one on the list, I think. It's, it's just a drop in the bucket. <laughs> so, Jay, what, you know, when, when we think about experience for retention versus experience for acquisition, mm. what, what's the difference between those two things? Well, experience for for retention is typically rooted in competency, right? So mistake avoidance, um, problem avoidance, and and of course that's critical because it reduces churn, and, and churn's a, a real problem for, for lots of businesses. But one of the things that, that I've spent a lot of my career working on is this notion, I wrote a whole book about it, th- this whole notion that competency doesn't create conversations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever says, oh, let me tell you about what happened last night. We went to this place and it was perfectly adequate. <laughs> right? That's why you don't see a lot of three-star reviews. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, mm-hmm. so I just got back from this store. It was almost exactly what I expected. Three stars. <laughs> right? It just, there's just no – there's no story no. there. Um but you, you've got to do something that turns your customers into volunteer marketers. You have to give them a story to tell. And physiologically, we're all wired the same way in that we discuss things that are different and we ignore things that are average. Dan, you kind of alluded to this earlier where, where service um, becomes important. Now, sir, as well, that, that service becomes kind of the, the through line of a lot of reviews mm-hmm. because service fluctuates a lot. Right. Mm-hmm. The product itself doesn't fluctuate as much. And, and, and it doesn't matter what kind of business it is. You can do something that they don't expect and turn that into a word of mouth engine. So here's a, a quick example. There's an accounting firm in Indianapolis, not too, too far from me. Uh, they're called Bognadoff and Dodges. And they are unremarkable in, in almost any way. Small accounting firm. They do personal returns, small business returns, little tax advice. There's two principals, Paul and Tim. They have an associate and a front desk person. They do the same thing for the same price as somewhere around 10,000 accounting firms in the U.S. Except for one thing. Jenna, we talked earlier that quick, clear, and kind are three big customer experience levers. They lean into quick. Mm. They answer every client every time within five minutes. Five-minute response time for an accounting firm. Wow. That's not something that you expect or something that you have probably ever experienced. And it manifests in all kinds of free marketing. Their customers do their marketing for them. So first of all, if you go to Google reviews, they have like 70 reviews for an accounting Mm -hmm. firm. (laughs) Right. Like, have you ever felt compelled to review your accountant's (laughs) Under any circumstance, like, hey, check this out, Google. Uh, I got my tax return back. All the numbers added up. Three stars. <laughs> Terrific. Right? I mean, it's like there's, like there's just no there's no there there. But they've got like 70 reviews, which is crazy. And 60-ish of them mention specifically how fast mm-hmm. they are. Hmm. So that is, Nasser, that is CX for acquisition. Right, it's customer experience as word of mouth generator, and in my estimation, it's one of the most overlooked things in business. Mm-hmm. Right, as 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 Robert Stevens, who is the co-founder of Geek Squad, 
the services arm for Best Buy once said, advertising is a tax paid by the unremarkable. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not entirely true. There was a time and a place for advertising, certainly. But it is also true that many of the most successful brands advertise the least because their customers do that job for them. But they will only do that if you actually give them a story mm-hmm. to tell. For sure. Interesting. I love your uh, uh, adequacy anecdote, Jay. It reminds me, our CEO, Norm, he has a famous quote about being average and how it's the best of the worst and the worst of the best and how it's not something yeah, I like you want that. to be. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to start assigning you three stars on most of your days that you just show up That for. sounds reasonable. <laughs> Dan was Dan, Dan, Dan today. Dan did exactly what I expected him to do. Three stars. <laughs> another great yeah. Wednesday. Three yeah. stars. Yeah. <laughs> three stars. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, Jay, you said something earlier on about having brands think small to get to a good customer experience. Can you yeah. talk a little bit more about that? Like your your accounting firm example is a perfect example because they are small. <laughs> but what, well, about, and, a, what and about a brand that's not? How do they think small to get that it's, done better? It's the same. Um, it's And we touched on this a little bit, Jenna, this idea that you can't think about customer experience as, for example, let's get faster. Yeah. What are you going to do with that? What do you mean? How? In what channels? By what mechanisms, right? You've got to boil it down to something very specific. In their case, it's we answer everybody within five minutes, phone and email, and they're allowed to do that because if Paul's on the phone, Tim takes it. If they're both on the phone, it goes to the associate. If all three are on the phone, the front desk person takes it and says, we'll, get, we'll call you back. They have a, a, an autoresponder email chain that they built inside the accounting firm. Mm-hmm. It, and it's the same for a big company. You just, you just structure it that way. Uh, Discover Card, for example. So Discover Card, um, most people don't know this, but they actually invented the concept of cashback. They literally invented it um, when they were owned by Sears 30 years ago. They were the only ones that did cashback on purchases for a long, long, long time. Like it was truly uh, a a differentiator. They they were the only ones. And then I don't know when, I guess I'm going to say 10 years. I'm not totally clear on the timeline, but that's about right. Uh, the, the the folks at Capital One in particular came along and spent a tremendous amount of money on television ads mm-hmm. and hired a bunch of celebrity spokespeople to convince the whole world that, nah, bro, were the cashback mm-hmm. guys. And it is as if they just walked into Discover's conference room, punched everybody in the face, <laughs> stole their differentiator and left. And I actually talk about this in my book, Hug Your Haters. My, my friend Dan Gingis was running – uh, social at Discover at the time. And and quite literally, they had meetings like, what do we do now? Like, we no longer have a differentiator. And they said, well, what if, being in financial services, what if we were just so much faster than anybody else that it was actually noticeably different? So they audited everybody, obviously MasterCard and American Express and Visa, but also major banks and, and stock brokerages. And, and they, they realized that everybody kind of sucked at responsiveness. So they totally re-engineered their operations, hired a bunch of people, new software, change management, training, the whole hullabaloo. And they built a program so that a credit card company – and this started seven years ago, so it was really remarkable mm-hmm. then. This credit card company could respond to every client, every time, every channel. Social, phone, email, hostage note, whatever. They could respond to everybody within 10 minutes. 
And it was so much faster than anybody else in the industry that it became their calling card um, for, for, for many years. So any, any business can do it, Jenna. You just have to figure out what you're going to do specifically mm. and then go actually do that thing. Awesome. So when, uh, that's, that's an interesting segue, I think, maybe, Jay, into, you know, you've said in the past uh, that today every business is informationally a startup. I mean, there's some connective tissue between that sentiment and what you were just explaining. Well, especially now, because, the, because of the pandemic, nobody knows nothing right. about nothing. <laughs> right? You can't take anything for mm-hmm. granted. You know, I, I'm, I'm 51 now, so I've had, I don't know, like 600 haircuts in my life. When I got my first haircut uh, since the pandemic, it was like last June, so it had been a while. Uh, and and those of you who have never seen a picture of me, I usually keep the hair fairly neat and tidy. But when it gets long, um, which luckily very few people have seen, it gets very bouffant. It's sort of like a real bad early days Bill Clinton kind of a vibe. Um, and my wife, my wife was like, "No, you got to do something about this." And and like I, I'm on camera enough. I'm like, "Well, you're not cutting it with kitchen shears, right? Like some kind of hobo. Like I'm not going to do that." So I I went to the haircut place and like I said I figured yeah I know how haircuts work not anymore like is the place open the lady who cuts my hair does she still work there where do I park how long are appointments now do I wear a mask does she wear a mask do I shampoo my hair does she shampoo it do you still sell shampoo how do I pay for a haircut now with filthy paper currency <laughs> or can I tap my phone to pay like a modern citizen and on and on and on and on to get a haircut. Now, imagine the complexity of, a, of an enterprise organization. Like, customers don't know. So in my company, we call this the uncertainty gap. And the uncertainty gap is the distance between what you know about how to transact with your business and what the customer knows. And that gap is bigger than it's been since the Internet was invented. And one of the most important things you can do right now in CX, and it sort of bleeds over um, per your question, Dan, it's sort of a Venn diagram with, with marketing and comms, is to literally have like the ultimate FAQ. Mm-hmm. I see all these companies that answer eight questions right. on their website. I'm like, you need to answer 80 questions on your website. Mm-hmm. Start there. Mm-hmm. Starting with, are you open? Yeah, That's the first seriously. one. So Jay, I want to take you back to something you were talking earlier, and and you mentioned the word differentiation, which, which hmm. is a, an area I care about deeply. How how can brands, especially at a time like this, differentiate with experience? Well, I think it's actually easier than ever to differentiate with experience because everybody's experience is so manifestly terrible uh, in in many cases. We talked about it. I mean, how about actually sending me sweatpants on time? That'd be cool. Let's start there, right? Like, um, or or let's be let's be disproportionately empathetic to customers because they're going through a tough time. Like Chewy.com, for example, or or brands uh, like that. The the hard part with differentiation is that sometimes it's not about process or software; hmm. it's about people, and and that can sometimes have a hard time scaling. But ultimately what I find, and we touched on this twice now, the interactions that you have with people in the company are the ones that tend to have the greatest impact on you as a customer and are the ones that 
you'll tell most stories about. And, and if I may, I'll, I'll tell you a little quick tale about that. Um, I used to travel 200 days a year. Now I travel zero days a year. Uh, and uh, pre-pandemic, I was going to Australia to do some some speaking for Volkswagen down there. And my wife got to come with me, which is great. And we were in L.A. So we were flying from Indianapolis, L.A., L.A. to Brisbane. We're making our connection at LAX. And we're boarding the flight. The gate agent scans my boarding pass and, and peers into that. You know, they've got like those little black boxes by the gates. And they kind of – I don't know what's in there. Some, there's, some, there's some info in there. I think it's your name and your, and your status or your miles or whatever because she kind of peers in there. Uh, and as though, Mr. Bear, you know, thank you for your loyalty. We appreciate your diamond status here on Delta. Uh, thanks and enjoy your flight. And that was nice to hear. But in mm-hmm. those days, I, I traveled so much, I'd heard it a lot. It didn't really – it wasn't a differentiator. Right? I didn't think of it as, oh, wow, thanks, Delta. But then, Nasser, she, she, she scans my wife's boarding pass and peers into the magic box and realizes that my wife has very few frequent flyer miles at all. Oh, oh, no, wait. <laughs> Mrs. Bear. Mrs. Bear, I'd just like to take a moment to thank you for what you must be doing at home to allow Mr. Bear to spend so much time with us here at oh, Delta. Wow. So, ma'am, I'd like to take a moment to just thank you and hope that you have a fantastic flight. Wow. And we went down that jetway in tears because she completely nailed our relationship dynamic. And now Delta has exhibited what I like to call the coveted customer experience, which is when you exceed expectations, you differentiate so much that price and perfection are no longer required. If you're not the cheapest, it's okay. If you make a mistake, they'll give you another try. That's what we're trying to to get, Mm -hmm. right? The the, the coveted customer experience buys you one of the most important things in business that we never talk about, the benefit of the doubt. And and so even though I don't fly now, (laughs) when I fly again, I'll be flying Delta. Mm -hmm. And that's not a process story. That's not a software story. And sometimes differentiation is about giving your team permission to treat a person like another person. And right now, in the middle of the pandemic, that kind of thing is a better differentiation strategy than probably anything else you awesome. could do. That's amazing. So, Jay, we're just uh, coming to the end of our session here. Before we end, uh, I wanted to invite you to um, to be Dan for a moment, which I know is a terrifying uh, thought. <laughs> it, it is. But, but typically, is. Uh, as, as a, as a uh, point of reference, uh, Dan is a man who lives his life in a constant state of frustration. So we always ask, what frustrates you the most about this conversation? So I would ask you, Jay, uh, to step in as Dan today and <laughs> okay. ask you, what about customer experience frustrates you the most today? I think it's the gap between um, people's desire to be good at customer experience and unwillingness to make changes to actually be better at customer mm-hmm. experience. As we talked about earlier, like every business is like, yeah, we should do that. And then they don't do anything, right? They, it's just lip service, right? It's just like it's sloganeering. Uh, and, and that really frustrates me from a consultative perspective. As a customer, um, probably what I hate the least or, or hate the most, um, enjoy the least, is is inconsistency 
of of information. Uh, this happened to me literally 20 minutes ago, 40 minutes, whenever we started the show, right before I logged on. I'm trying to buy a new couch. And I bought the same couch from the same guys four years ago. And I said, here's my order number from 2016. I want the exact same couch, different color. That seemed pretty easy. You would think so. Two days pass. Two days pass, which, number one, that felt like, you know, kind of a long time. Uh, and I get an email back, so you want this. Totally different couch. Not even <laughs> not even different size, different style. I'm like, no, that's not. And I gave you the order number. That's the kind of thing, especially because being in digital so long, I know how it happens. They've got, you know, different databases and inconsistent data entry and probably multiple systems. So I have some degree of sympathy, but I also know that that kind of thing can be yeah, solved. Sure. And at this point, it's 2021. You should solve mm-hmm. it. Especially if you want $5,000 for a couch. Also, get it where's people. my jetpack? Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes. No, you're, you're absolutely right. This idea of, um, uh, you know, migrating. I, I was told the other day, hey, this didn't work out because uh, corporate is migrating and merging databases with ours here regionally. Yeah, and I'm like, why, why is this? Yeah. Why is this my problem? In, in what oh. universe is this my problem? It, it, it is that is one of my pet peeves. In fact, I've got this whole um, speech I do sometimes called the 13 words that you should never say to a customer. Um, and, and, and one of those words, sort of a category of words, is division department. Right. Mm-hmm. What I like to tell everybody, and we say this to clients too, your customers care 0% about your org yeah. chart. <laughs> yep. To, to them, there is no org chart. There are people who work there and the rest of the world who does not. That is literally all they care about. So on that note... Thank you, Jay Bear, and thank you to my colleagues, Jenna Watson and Dan Tamby. You've been listening to Inside the Funnel. You've been listening to Inside the Funnel with Jenna Watson, Dan Tamby, and Nasser Salul. Until next time, don't forget to like, subscribe, and connect with the AC wherever you see us online.